Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's your favorite Quentin Quarantino's back again. Uh, and, you know, my name is still Ben. Uh, my name is Noel. Ben, I was not expecting that. Uh, that was good. What's a good another one? Like Quarantine Dogs? Yeah, no. there we go. That's a good one. That's not, yeah, that's that's a not good quite. One. Yours, just, yours is way better. Um, uh, no, I got nothing. Uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, uh, your shining uh, visage peering at me uh, through my laptop screen. Yeah, it's good to see you. Oh, you're Noel still. I am right? Noel. I am Noel. And the way my windows are arrayed right now, you're very tiny. Let me make you bigger real quick. I want to really get a good look at you. We're using Skype today. We're trying. There you are. And over there is Super Producer Casey Pegram. In the right panel of my Skype window. How about Inglorious Maskards? <laughs> you're hired. Very good. I like it. Very hey, good. Uh, I'll... Or, yeah. or oh. Once Upon a Time in Quarantine. Oh my gosh, he's on fire. <laughs> so, uh, okay. uh, so, uh, I got quarantine say, land, quarantine wood, perhaps. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. We're working uh, life here. We'll, we'll work on these and send us your favorite Quentin Tarantino themed quarantine puns. Uh, in the meantime, Casey, I want to give you a shout out there on, in your window on the right side of my screen. Uh, you, sir, are a man of impeccable sartorial or fashion taste. And, uh, you have, you have not let your game slip while we're in our exiles because you have one of America's favorite t-shirts on right now. That is true. I am wearing uh, the podcast of the very podcast we are recording right now. I am the guy at the show wearing the shirt of the band, um, except I'm in the band. So that's even worse. <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, am full nude, have been the whole time, guys. Yeah, I had, I had to minimize that window. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I do want to point out for everybody's thinking, is Casey wearing that Casey on the case shirt with him as a child model? No, no, he didn't go that far. No, he's just wearing the classic Ridiculous History tee, uh, available now uh, and and always on uh, tpublic.com slash Ridiculous History, I think. Is that how it goes? Some, something like that. 
Stuff yeah. like that. We'll get the link up. That'll, that'll get you in the neighborhood. Yeah, that'll get you in the neighborhood. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a classic all its own, a classic mystery. This may be a deep cut for some folks, but if you, like many of us, uh, were a fan of those old paranormal or conspiratorial time life books, like Mysteries of the Unknown, then you may have heard of these strange children, these literally green children. Now, Noel, I wanted to ask you, would you would you characterize this as a complete legend? Would you say there's probably something to it? Or should we, do you want to wait until the end of the show to make a, a claim or a judgment? Oh my gosh, Ben, it's, it's hard to even uh, say whether it's any one of those things more than the other. It's kind of uh, more than any other story I've ever really dug into, a, a lot of all of them. Um, and it's still hard to this day to decide which one it is more of, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. And we want we want to hear from you, fellow ridiculous historians. After we after we explore this, let us let us know what you think. I, I know we always say that, but this is this is something that we we definitely want to hear more of because this this story, kind of like True Detective season one, like a much lighter version. This story skirts the supernatural without ever fully going supernatural. Here we are, the legend of the green children of Woolpit. It starts during the reign of a guy named King Stephen in a time in England's history in the mid-12th century called the Anarchy. What do we know about Woolpit? Well, uh, we know a little bit about Woolpit. Uh, we know that it is an English uh, town uh, in England, obviously, and it comes from the old English word for Wolfpit. Um, it is in Suffolk, uh, and that is what it was named after, is these actual physical traps or pits that were used for catching wolves, because that was a thing at the time. Wolves, wild wolves roaming the, the heaths uh, were, were kind of a problem. And they would not only kill like your livestock, you know, your sheep and whatnot, but they were known to to come into villages and stuff at night and kill like you know sleeping children. Maybe I'm being alarmist here, but uh, definitely a uh, serious business. So there would be these pits that were dug into the ground, um, sometimes reinforced with stones, almost like a well, not quite as deep. And the wolf they'd be covered up sometimes with like you know straw or what have you to to disguise them, and then the wolves would fall in. Yeah. That was the namesake of this town in Suffolk, which is the uh, kind of main location of our tale. Yeah, so this is this is fascinating. Now, I, I want to address the point that many of our many of our listeners in the audience are already thinking of, which is this: Do wolves typically attack humans? The answer is no, but. That's it. The answer is a no asterisk or no but, because wolves will definitely attack humans if we're all collectively experiencing some form of privation during times of famine. And there's, uh, you know, during times when these predators can't access other sources of nutrition, of course, if driven to desperation, they'll go for people and they'll go for livestock first. So a lot of those wolf catching pits, which, as you said, Noel, are a real thing. A lot of those wolf catching pits were for livestock, uh, but wolves were known to attack people. The weird thing about Woolpit is that this was not really a middle of the of nowhere place. In the Middle Ages, the village of Woolpit was actually in one of the most agriculturally productive regions of the land, as well as one of the most densely populated areas 
It belonged to the uh, Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds, which was tremendously rich and powerful. Uh, so what we've set the stage. This is where the story occurs. Uh, but we also want to tell you a little bit about how we know the story, because we don't have any firsthand evidence of this. It's, it's cobbled together from a couple of different reports. Yeah, that's right. One of them came from uh, a person by the name of Ralph Kogeshal, and then another person by the name of William of Newburgh. Uh, and they were the two, um, we'll call them primary sources, that um, had accounts of this tale that were then stitched together by historians. Um, and, uh, well, actually, let me backtrack on that. It wasn't necessarily firsthand at all. Um, they were anecdotal, but they are the only two people that we know about that were around uh, to write about it and there are some pretty wide swings um, about when this story took place for example uh, one version might say that it took place during the reign of uh, King Stephen another and that was 1135 to 1154 another uh, might attribute it to happening during the reign of King Henry II which was 1154 to 11. 89. Um, and it was the kind of story that was very, very regional until around 1850 when Thomas Kitely um, put together a, uh, a compendium called the second edition of fairy mythology that contained um, a telling of this story. And before that, um, it had really been something that you could only get in, in Latin tomes. Um, and uh, in the 12th century, uh, a book called His Historia Rerum Anglicarum, and that was by Newberg, and uh, then Ralph Kogershaw's volume, Cornicon Anglicum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is also, by the way, <laughs> the fun part of this is that both those guys, Willie and Ralph, uh, it's William of Newberg and Ralph of Kogershaw, they, they were in that period where your name would have an of in front of it. So it would be like Casey of Pegram, which I sound, I think sounds pretty classy. And I would love to bring that back, you know, Noel of Brown, Ben of Bolin, uh, you know, it's got some panache, some gravitas. So as you said, yes, for a long time, this only came from those two uh, 12th century sources. But after Thomas Kitely brought this out to the English speaking world in the uh, 1800s, it was reprinted, it was um, adapted or embellished and put into all these anthologies of fairy tales and British folk tales. And it even got to the point where when you would read the their version of regional guidebooks, it would also say like, Woolpit, famous for the green children, and have a little paragraph about the legend. And this story which I know we're telling you the story of the story, but we'll get to this actual story. This story uh, took off because this story was, um, it was mimetic. People love to tell it. They love to hear it. And it was very difficult to prove or disprove. So we have to, we have to ask ourselves again, the question we were talking about at the top, ultimately we're on a mission to determine whether this story is a folk tale or some embellished version of actual history, you know, like the way a grain of sand can get all this stuff layered onto it and make a pearl. We want to see if there's a grain of truthful sand in this fantastic story. But here we go. Once upon a time, maybe I'm biasing people here, but I like the way this story starts. Once upon a time, there were these two kids, a boy and his sister, and they're found at harvest time 
near some ditches that had been dug to, you guessed it, trap wolves at St. Mary's of the Wolf Pits, now known as Wolf Pit. And they were found by uh, agricultural workers, reapers, like literally dudes swinging scythes back and forth. But not like of the grim variety. These were like potentially upbeat reapers. Yeah. Uh, well, although these were pretty tough times, you know, they might have been a little bit grim, but but not harbingers of death itself. Yes, yes, good point, yeah. Uh, reapers get a bad name in uh, these are modern days. So imagine this, these wolf trapping pits have been dug and they're pretty deep because you don't want wolves to jump out of them. But these kids come out of one of these pits. And this is weird because the pits were probably twice as tall as the children. They were a couple hundred square feet in total area. So how did they get out? That's one weird question, but there was a much weirder question that needed to be addressed first. And that was the skin color of these kids. Yeah, they had a certain uh, greenish uh, hue to their skin, um, which is, you know, it's already weird that they kind of emerged from these pits. Like, this story is already set up to be the stuff of legend, right? Like, there's no question about it. There's a lot of details that really lend themselves to, um, what's the word? Not alarmism, but embellishment, let's say, where you can really hop on. Oh, they had green skin, and they came out of these, like, 10-foot deep pits, and they were really spooky, and they came, took us by surprise, and were probably levitating. I don't know. Um, that, that, I, that last part I made up. But yeah. It's true. They had this greenish tinged skin. They were wearing odd looking clothes. They spoke in an unintelligible language, unintelligible, at least to these Merry Reapers. Um, and so, yeah, super strange little kids, creepy kids wandering up um, out, out of the clear blue sky, out of the deep, deep, dark uh, wolf pits. And what's a Reaper to do uh, when faced with a situation like this, Ben? Well, they took them to the village and they said, you know, these are weird kids, but they're still definitely kids. They look human. So somebody helped them out. And they took them to a local landowner, Sir Richard DeCane uh, at Wilkes. Now, Richard DeCane is the one who, for those of you keeping track at home, Richard DeCane is the guy who allegedly gave the information to our earlier people who write the books, those two guys. So Richard is allegedly the primary source and he notices some weird stuff first their diet the kids you know you're an adult you see some kids wandering in the woods you want to feed them but these kids despite looking famished and starving they would not eat any of the food presented to them and so the entire picture of this the entire village is trying to go through their larders to find something the green the green kiddos will eat and one of them eventually brings around some beans uh, that had just been harvested, and the kids love them. Uh, what kind of beans, we may be wondering? Glad you asked. Uh, in this is a point where the stories differ. That's right. One story says they're fava beans. Another one says, no, that's BS. They're green beans, and the kids didn't get them from the villagers. They just ate them straight out of the ground. Well, wait, so that means that maybe this is a version of the story where they were kind of fending for themselves or like foraging and maybe the the kindly village folk had not found them yet or what's the deal there? It sounds like in this version of the story, it sounds like the kids, uh, they tried to feed the kids and then they let the kids wander around and the kids foraged uh, and only ate beans for months and months. And then they expanded 
their culinary horizons and eventually started eating bread. But it doesn't say how many months went by. And you got to wonder, how long can a person survive on beans, you know? I mean, I like a bean. Don't get me wrong. It's a good staple food. But yeah, I see another version of the story, too, where um, they uh, specifically had a taste for raw beans that were uh, freshly harvested as well. So it may have been that, you know, whatever the freshly picked crop was, that was what attracted the kids' eyes. And the fact that they were green beans, wonder if there's a little creative license in that telling <laughs> of the story. It also makes me wonder, you know, you hear about um, a lot of fairy folk. We'll get to this. And, uh, you know, supernatural creatures from this part of the country that were green, like the green man and a lot of like, you know, woodland uh, fairies that are green. I wonder if the jolly green giant, uh, you know, canned vegetables came from, from any of this lore kind of bet it did. Oh yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Because the, uh, the green man or the, the vegetable God is an ancient, ancient belief. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of carries over into this story. That's that's an A-plus folklore reference there, man. Uh, so we know that Richard raises these kids, or he at least allows them to live with him. And he's, he's the big guy in town because he's a landowner. Uh, he lets them live on his estate for several years, and slowly he tries to convert them to eating normal food. According to our earlier sources, the ones in Latin, this change in diet eventually led to them losing their green complexion. And also, let's bring in some modern science here. Research does show that people who eat large quantities of certain fruits and vegetables can show a change in skin color, but it's more toward a uh, golden healthy glow. Mm. You know, this is actually true. And I say this from experience. I had a piano teacher when I was younger who um, had cancer and uh, uh, she went a very holistic route in her treatment and was uh, prescribed lots of high uh, in, in um, you know, nutrient vegetables. And she ate lots of carrots and drank lots of carrot juice. And she actually developed kind of a, an orangish color. Like and that's that's that it's absolutely true. Yeah, that can happen. It's called carotinemia and it's uh, apparently most notable on thick skin like the soles of your feet for example it's uh, caused by an excess of beta carotene in the blood uh, this this is weird there there are a couple of other strange skin color stories we can get to but with these folks it was so long ago that we don't have the science but it appears that the folklore is building or implying an argument that whatever these kids were eating before they showed up it was somehow partially responsible for their green skin color uh but they didn't they didn't adjust very easily did they know no, they really didn't, Ben. Um, the the girl uh, proved to be a bit more resilient, but unfortunately, the boy um, became sickened and, and uh, for lack of a better term, depressed and kind of disenchanted. And he eventually did um, did pass away uh, due to this illness, uh, maybe because of malnourishment. We, we don't really know. But um, thankfully, the his sister um, remained in pretty good health and uh, her skin um, went returned to a normal shade and lost that green tinge. Uh, and that is when she began to pick up 
English, because you'll recall that we uh, we mentioned that both of them spoke what to the villagers that found them uh, was was gobbledygook and some kind of like alien tongue, right? Um, and so she eventually started picking up after you know she was uh, taken in by this household, um, and she started telling some stories, didn't she? Yes. Here is our second once upon a time. Uh, you're right, Noel. As as this kid learns to speak English, she becomes increasingly articulate and she starts to tell the villagers and tell Richard, the landowner, the story of her origin. This was called St. Martin's Land. At least that's what it's called now. And in St. Martin's Land, according to this girl, everything and everyone was green. It was always twilight. According to her, this boy who had recently passed away was in fact her brother. Now, here's where the stories differ. We're going to do our best to give you the multiple versions or differences. In one version, she says that she and her brother had been herding livestock for her father, and they heard a loud noise, and they found themselves suddenly at the bottom of this wolf pit. But then there's another report uh, that that's a little different, right? Yeah, there there are, like I said, this is one of those things that you have to take with a grain of salt because not only were the sources that we know of not firsthand, it's been passed down and really treated like the stuff of lore. So it really is the kind of thing where it's really hard to say where the truth ends and the fiction begins and vice versa. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental 
part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So yeah, yet another version of the story has the children um, being transported from their uh, their homeland, uh, St. Martin's Land, um, to the field where they were found, or to, to the wolf pit, rather, um, when they hear the sound of bells. And they're uh, transported to this cave. When they come out, they realize that they're in Woolpit and not uh, good old St. Martin's Land. Um, and that they, you know, the, the, the blinding lights, you know, kind of like uh, hits their eyes and then they realize we're not in Kansas anymore um, because they had apparently, according to this version, wandered in darkness for quite some time. Not to mention there's a part that's consistent in several of these stories that the girl tells her host family that St. Martin's land where they come from is a land of permanent twilight. Right, right. Yeah. As I had mentioned before, this was one of the details that was consistent uh, along with her statement that everyone and everything in St. Martin's Land was green. So there we go. We can already also see some familiar folklore tropes, like the old Joseph Campbell thing, the cave you fear to enter holds the mm. treasure you seek. Uh, there, there's a lot of powerful symbolic stuff going on here. Back to Ralph and Willie, their stories differ uh, in some notable ways. Uh, William says that this girl called her home St. Martin's Land, and he says that she said, see, we're playing the telephone game already. He says that she said everyone there venerated and worshipped the saint, St. Martin. And this is interesting because St. Martin was known to the surface world. I'm planting a seed there. St. St. Martin was known uh, in Western monasticism. He had a November feast day. He had a harvest festival in particular, and his festival was comparable to Halloween. And uh, William said, that inhabitants could see, even though they were in a twilight realm, they could see a bright land over a great river. William's story also cuts out the cavern and just says that the kids literally heard the bells and then woke up in the wolf pit. Oh, we should mention that uh, Richard, by the way, was a little out of order, but uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't note one of the first things that Richard did when the kids were under his care 
he took them to be baptized. Of course he did. It's kind of like medical care, right? Uh, for th- for them at that time. Uh, yes, that, that's probably right. They think it's going to uh, inoculate them against the forces of evil or whatever. I don't know. Uh, uh, the reason I ew about it is that like they don't know anything about the, the these children's heritage or where they come from or what their faith might be. It's just very presumptuous is all I'm saying, I guess, right? Right, which also makes you wonder how much of a uh, how much of the narrative has been twisted to meet religious expectations of the time because they're they're in what appears to be a subterranean realm that already has maybe not knowledge of Catholic dogma, but they all know mm. one saint in particular. That's well, that's odd. Yeah, that that is really weird, right? That they know of one saint. That, that we're gonna get into kind of the unraveling of the story, but you gotta wonder too if like you know, was there concern that these were somehow like demons from the fiery pits of hell? You know, they come from a pit, at the very most, a subterranean realm. I don't know. I'd, I, if I was a, a, a truly, truly God-fearing man, like, uh, like this gentleman likely was, uh, that might give me pause. I'd be like, get thee to a baptizery, you know, post-haste. Or, or an uh, exorcism mart, or whatever they called them, right? Surely they had those then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For they were just convenience. farmers markets. They were just like, like you know, there was just a stall at the farmers market next to the produce. You've got like a priest who can exercise your your demons. Maybe even exercise your vegetables before you take them home with you. It's a drive through too, or a trot through, so you can take your horse if you're in a hurry, and you know you don't have to get out of the saddle. That's that's the one you want to look for in the mart. So there you have it. Now, now the next question. So the young boy has died, but what happened to the mysterious green girl? According to the story, which I know we've been saying a lot in this episode, according to the stories, the green girl eventually assimilates into society. She's baptized. Uh, There are rumors that she later marries someone in an adjacent county, Norfolk, near Suffolk, uh, who may have been high up in the government all the time. Although there are some other reports that I would say are uh, way less verifiable, although none of this is verifiable. There are conflicting reports that, you know, really showcase the misogyny of the day and say she became, quote, rather loose and wanton in her conduct. I'm sorry, loose and wanton? Mm -hmm. Is that like referencing her uh, sexual proclivities, perhaps? Right. That's what they're saying. Yeah. They're saying she grew up and got around. Uh, Again, again, my groan is not for her. My groan is for the judginess of these people. Right, right. Again, yeah, like I said, the misogyny of the time. Uh, She may have taken the name Agnes Barr, B-A-R-R-E, but there's no no definitive evidence. Uh, We we know one report of the guy she married. He's uh, an archdeacon, I think. Yeah, that's right. Archdeacon of Eli, uh, a man by the name of Richard Barr. Um, And according to one account, they had at least one child. What color was the kid? Uh, unclear. <laughs> unclear. Uh, yeah. Well, well, that just means opaque. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, because you know, we, one thing we let's get into this. So that's a really good segue, Ben. Um, why were they green in the first place? Yeah. So if, and this is a big, big if, if the story is based on something that was true. There are a couple of plausible explanations behind this uh, green greenish hue. One theory is arsenic poisoning because uh, 
you know, arsenic has been used to create green dyes in the past. And if you are exposed to it, it can give your skin this green dotted rash. But the weird thing is, if we think it through at this time in history in England, if you found some kids you didn't know and they had something that looked like a disease, you would be way less likely to do the Christian thing and help them out because you wouldn't want to expose your own community to things that could literally kill everyone you love within a matter of weeks or months. You know, leprosy, measles, smallpox, all the hits, all the terrible grim and grisly hits. Yeah, it's true. I mean, gosh, it's, it's, it really puts into perspective what we're dealing with right now. I mean, like I've had this uh, a bit of a cold and it turned into some bronchitis for going on three weeks now. And as this, uh, you know, coronavirus situation hit in, just having a bit of a cough really started to turn some heads uh, just in terms of like suspicion towards me as a, as a human being walking around. So at this time when, I mean, there were so many uh, potentially absolutely uh, obliterating um, diseases, like you mentioned, uh, there would certainly be some suspicion, right? Uh, and and it makes you really gives you pause as to why they would have just taken in these oddly colored children with such open arms if they even caught a whiff that there might be something wrong with their health. Absolutely, and there may have been something wrong with their health because remember, one piece of evidence we have is that their skin color changed when their diet changed, right? Uh, we we have a couple of other theories that might explain their green coloring. What, what was it called? Chlorosis? Kind of like chlorophyll or something? I'm not sure. Yes, uh, it comes from the Greek word chloris, which uh, refers to uh, a greenish yellow color. Um, and and this is something that that has been this is the this is a funny part of the story here uh, that has been observed for for centuries past. There's a German doctor by the name of Johannes Lange uh, who, in the 16th century, um, referred to this disease as something called uh, a disease of virgins. Um, and he said the remedy was to go have you some sex. Yeah. That'll 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 knock it that'll knock it right out, uh, and now you know and yeah it is now in the twentieth century um, we now realize that it has more to do with uh, with malnourishment and and should be treated with iron supplements sort of like scurvy uh, which is a, a lack of vitamin C but I'm thinking of when you're jaundiced and you have a yellow complexion to your skin doesn't Ooh. that also have something to do with malnourishment or what is that uh, as a result of am I completely misconstruing that yeah so jaundice can have a couple of different causes it turns it turns you yellow because you have a high level of this stuff called uh bilirubin which is a bile pigment it can come from hepatitis come from gallstones tumors uh it's pretty gross yeah i mean it's it's a rough thing to have but you're right it can also come from diet so first off i, I want to say dr lang Calling this a disease of virgins and prescribing sex as a cure sounds like sounds troubling because it sounds like he might have been writing that to a specific patient. You know what I mean? Pretty totally. gross. Yeah. Yeah. So so there we go. There is some science, and we know that there are a couple of different ways in which people through privation can turn green or their skin color can noticeably visibly change. But our next question is. Okay, cut past the legends, cut past the endlessly fascinating folklore. 
who were these children, assuming they are real, and where did they really come from? Here is where a uh, <laughs> one publication that I always loved, Fortean Studies, comes into play uh, through an author named Paul Harris. Indeed, Harris suggested in a book he wrote called Fortean Studies 4 from 1998 that the children uh, could have been Flemish refugees um, who were absolutely uh, persecuted in the, in these days. And then they would have come from a nearby uh, town or village called Forum St. Martin. Does that ring a bell? St. Martin. Uh, and that would have been um, separated by a, a quite substantial river from Woolpit, the River Lark. And remember that part of the story about being able to see a bright shining light across a formidable river? Um, and yeah, a lot of these Flemish, there's, there's an excellent article on ancientorigins.net that really digs into some of the different um, potential explanations behind this phenomenon of the green children of Woolpit. And one of them is this is this tale uh, uh, that goes into the history of the Flemish persecution under uh, King Henry II. In 1173, many of them were killed in a place uh, near uh, Barry St. Edmunds uh, in the Battle of Forum. Um, and many of the folks who survived this massacre, it really was an absolute bloodbath, fled into the forest, Thetford Forest to be specific. And what would be an area that feels like perma-twilight, Ben? Right, the forest. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing, though. Uh, this brings up two important points. First, ancientorigins.net is, uh, this account is good for the legend or speculative aspects. There's not a lot of science there. So if you are working on a report for school, be sure, be sure to uh, note that when you're using it as a source. A uh, second question, how old were the children specifically? Other than that, the boy was appeared to be younger than the sister. We don't have a specific age for them. So if you are a very young child, then of course, Thetford Forest may have seemed like permanent twilight. It's an old growth forest. Uh, secondly, you know, maybe your parents fearing war would have taken you, uh, like told you to herd livestock and acted like everything was okay when they were just trying to get you away from the conflict. It's also true that because the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds was established and wealthy, they had the ability to ring loud bells. So loud bells often chimed. You could probably hear them over the river, but it's possible, and this comes from a Mental Floss article, it's possible that the children had been orphaned in the conflict, uh, had been foraging on something that gave them a poor diet, led to malnutrition and green skin, and eventually made their way to Woolpit by following the sound of the bells. And so then, like, that actually sounds plausible, doesn't it? It, it doesn't have all the secret uh conspiratorial supernatural elements it sounds like hazard of war a hundred percent and you know we're gonna we're gonna raise the the bar uh, one more rung on some of the conspiratorial angles in just a second but to me this one very much is uh the tragically 
most realistic scenario as that the, these were um, children who were disoriented, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, a lot of the uh, folks in these different Flemish villages would have had their own uh, very specific uh, dialects um, that would have been completely unintelligible to to outsiders, you know, in the same mm. way we have communities like the uh, the Irish travelers in Augusta, uh, Georgia, uh, Edgefield area, for example, where they speak a very specific uh, form of Gaelic, you know, that that's very alien to even, you know, Gaelic speakers. Right, right. This is an interesting point because what does unintelligible mean? We have to remember that people were far less likely to have intense interact or significant interactions with folks speaking a different language. They were also far less likely to be literate and they were far less likely to just uh, recognize something even if they didn't understand it. So all bets are off there. Uh, this is a time when a lot of people lived and died within mere miles of where they were born. So let's look at an historian named Derek Brewer. In his book, The Color Green, also in 1998, so note that this was a resurgence in the story, uh, Derek Brewer argues that the likely core of the matter is that these very small children herding or following flocks strayed from their village didn't speak very much. Maybe they were so young. And uh, the way we would put it in modern times is they didn't know their home address and they weren't like the kids in the movies who have a note pinned to them that says, hey, my house is, you know, right. one, two, three, Woolpit Street. Or one of those uh, tags. Remember, they used to be like special tags that kids would have on their backpacks, you know, almost oh, like, yeah. a, like that was a thing back in the day. Uh, I don't think it's so much. Well, nowadays, kids have like, you know, phones and stuff and you can just like mm -hmm. geolocate them. But um, yeah, you absolutely they would have just kind of been lost in, 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 in the in the wild. And uh, depending on the kindness of strangers and thankfully, they, they did get a little bit of help. Um, but yeah, it's true. Uh, it was really just this 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 version of the story is also pretty sad. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino, <laughs> and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos, and the last one, God bless it, I just I. I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, 
a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that that particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Brewer, by the way, also is a proponent of the chlorosis deficiency theory. So there we have it. There we have the plausible explanation for the green children, but let's get weird with it. Let's look into, just briefly, let's look into all the crazy stuff because that's that's the exciting stuff, right? So now uh, don your tinfoil hats with us or aluminum foil, I guess. Uh, let's look at Robert Burton, who in 1621, in his book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, suggests that the green children, quote, fell from heaven this this is true. This author did say this back in 1621, and it set the stage for later uh, independent researchers or authors or whatever you want to call them to say, hey, what if these kids were aliens? Yeah, this guy named Duncan Lonan uh, um, in an article published in Analog magazine in the late 90s, um, he hypothesized, we'll use that term loosely here, I guess, I guess, I guess it's appropriate, uh, that they could have accidentally been teleported or transported in some way from their home planet to Woolpit. Um, and, and, and he conjectured that their home planet may have been trapped in some sort of synchronous orbit around the sun um, and that it would have been a, a planet that had similar conditions that would have allowed life and also had a, uh, a kind of um, a sweet spot between having an un, uh, inhabitably hot surface and a uh, frozen dark side, such as the dark side of the moon. Yeah, yeah, dark side of the moon. That's a that's a good comparison. I also made me think of it, it made me think the author might have been implying Mercury 
as an origin mm. point. Uh, interestingly enough, scientists discovered uh, a few decades back that there is actually water ice on Mercury deep in these craters, uh, and, and we're still figuring out how it formed. So Mercury would be an interesting answer, but notice that he kind of, he Duncan Lunan kind of skips over the part where they got from wherever their extraterrestrial origin point was to Wolpit, England. Uh we have to say one other thing. This is, I think, one of the more fun, fantastical elements. The Green Children, it has so many tropes about the unseely, as they might be called in Gaelic or Irish culture, or the uh, the fair folk. What if these were elves or fae from some other dimension, the land of the fairy? It's weird because interpreting the story this way, uh, really hits on little specifics that sound kind of added into the story. Like, you know, in fairy mythology, fairies never eat mortal food. Yeah, that's even like a that's even a thing in uh, in Pan's Labyrinth, for example, where uh, uh, the uh, the heroine um, is presented with that that table of food, and she's uh, warned never to eat it, uh, and she eats it. And it's like considered to be a terrible taboo because her little fairy companions are really freaked out by this whole thing. Um, not not quite the same, but yeah, no, it's true. Like it's almost like there's various versions of that trope where like if the fairies eat human food, it could kill them, or or it could render them powerless, or they could lose lose their fairy abilities. Or what have you? Um, so it's almost as though these were that. That's why they rejected the human food. Uh, except, you know, I don't know. Like if it's beans, though, like that's grown from the ground. I mean, that seems pretty fairy friendly to me. Does it? Doesn't it? I don't know. In a lot of tropes, fairies or or the fae don't actually eat meat. They have practice a vegetarian or what we call a vegan diet. Uh, and it's interesting too. Two things it makes me think of. Just as an armchair folklorist here, uh, the Fae also traditionally fear instruments of iron. They're iron averse, but iron supplements fix chlorosis. It has nothing to do with anything. I'm Whoa, just, Ben, I, I think you're like onto the, something here. Of the Charlie Day meme right now. You know yeah. where I'm lining up stuff on the board. Uh, the, the ben, do you do yeah. you do you think your aversion to handling metal? potentially points that you may have some fairy blood in you. I don't, that's, uh, I, I don't know, man. I don't know because I eat meat, you know, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Maybe uh, you're just half fairy. I don't maybe know. Maybe I'm just half fairy. You know, I, I, I'd be okay with that. Everybody needs a little supernatural in their lives. Uh, right now though, no Casey, as, as you guys know, uh, this story has largely been dismissed as a an entirely fabricated tale of folklore and that brings us to the question we we started at the top so uh my my friends i want to give you all the honor what, what what do you think do you think complete fabrication do you think troublingly plausible or do you think maybe grain of truth embellished over centuries I mean, like I said, the the version of the story um, where they were Flemish refugees uh, that were kind of expelled um, in, in fear of their lives in, in to, to live in another kind of more wooded area that they call St. Martin's Land. Uh, it makes sense that, that that sounds like the way a child would describe 
something during a time of trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 all they could say was St. Martin's Land, and it was always twilight. They were just describing it in terms they could understand, you know? And, and having to process, like, losing their parents, uh, losing their way of life. I mean, you know, and we also don't know exactly how old they were. It doesn't seem like they were, like, babies. I mean, they had to, if they were helping tend flock, they probably would have been maybe minimum seven, eight years old, you know, maybe more like 10, 11, right? So they would have had a, a, a very real understanding for the most part of what was happening to them, but it would have been so painful and traumatic that they might have had to process it differently. Not to mention that they're malnourished and, you know, kind of wandering around in the in a, in a time where it was not very safe to do so. Yeah, and the fact that we know the male child was younger uh, means it may have been a situation where uh, the parents sent the girl to look after the livestock, but also watch your little brother. That's that's something that a lot of our uh, a lot of our fellow listeners who grew up with siblings will doubtlessly be familiar with. And thankfully, we do have it as the inspiration for a lot of fiction, poetry. Um, you know these kind of fairy tropes, and it is you know Ben and I. In, in hosting stuff they don't want you to know. Um, these, we, we run into stories all the, all the time like this where there's usually a very plausible explanation, but it's the implausible versions of the story that cause it to proliferate uh, and spread like wildfire because that's what captures people's imagination, not the sad tale of two wandering orphans, you know, that fall into a wolf pit. Uh, it's the version of it that, like, they're somehow supernatural beings from a subterranean land that, let you know, or, or from another planet that really gets people thinking. And the fact that there's so many varying versions of this story just adds to that. Yeah, agreed. And this is where the story draws to a close. We want to hear from you. Let us know where you fall. Do you believe that this was some sort of supernatural encounter? Do you, like Casey, Noel, and myself, think that this is more a, as I said earlier, a game of telephone over the centuries, but, you know, ultimately the story of war refugees? And maybe, most importantly, uh, do you have any other Uh, stories from folklore that you think have a grain of possible truth to them. If so, we'd love to hear them. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, not just as a show, but as individual people. Yeah, you can find me exclusively on Instagram. Uh, It's it's a lot of memes that I'm posting and a lot of uh, just... You know, I've been playing a little bit of guitar again. I might post some Instagram stories of my nerdy guitar synth setup, uh, making some ambient music to calm me down in this time of of uncertainty and, and chaos. And you can find all that stuff from me at How Now Noel Brown on Instagram. And let us know what your uh, what your hobbies are, what things that are keeping you from kind of going crazy are uh, right now during this time. You can send those as, as an email to us at uh, ridiculous at iheartradio.com. Yeah, and you can also find our uh, Facebook community page, Ridiculous Historians, for sharing your stories with our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners. Uh, As an individual, you can find me at Ben Bolin on Instagram. You can find me at Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. On a personal note, one thing that I'm doing on Twitter right now is fielding questions about prepping, about survival, about uh, hygiene 
I love in the time of coronavirus. So if there's something that you want to know about, if I don't have the answer, I will work ardently to find it for you. So don't hesitate to hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. And as always, before we go, we want to give a big thank you to our uh, our super producer, uh, the best dressed man on the Skype call. That's uh, Mr. Casey Pegram. And we'd also like to thank Alex Williams, who made this banging track you hear at the beginning and the end. Huge thanks to Gabe Lugier for being our research associate extraordinaire. Uh, Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Eve's Jeffco. Check out This Day in History class uh, produced by our pal Chandler Mays. And thanks to you, Noel. Uh, thanks to you, specifically you, for tuning in. We hope that you are happy, healthy, safe, and uh, not turning green. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.